Greetings, investors. This is Rudy Von Oboli, and I am bringing you Guild's weekly market commentary for the week ending June 1st. If you like what you hear today, please be sure to hit subscribe. You can find us on the web at guildinvestment.com, and you can find us in all the usual places for social media. So reach out, send us a message or an email. We would love to hear your calls and questions. If you visit us on the web, you can get information about signing up for our upcoming conference call next week. The trade conflict between the U.S. and China has always had some level of geopolitical undertones. Those became explicit in Vice President Mike Pence's speech at the Hudson Institute last October. After describing a litany of China's alleged abuses in unfair trade practices, appropriation of technology, and geopolitical aggression, Pence noted, quote, These are only a few of the ways that China has sought to advance its strategic interests across the world with growing intensity and sophistication. Yet, previous administrations all but ignored China's actions, and in many cases they abetted them. But those days are over, unquote. At the time this speech was made, some worried analysts and reporters feared that it might indicate the beginning of a new Cold War. We believed and we continue to believe that while the concerns expressed by the U.S. administration are rooted in reality, the rhetoric was not meant to cause a break in negotiation. Rather, the U.S. wanted to convey to Chinese leadership that they were dealing with a new sheriff who would be conducting tougher negotiations than his predecessor and who was willing to make public statements about what's really going on behind the curtain. A recent statement in the state-run Beijing Global Times newspaper expressed some core concerns of Chinese leadership over the current state of the trade agreement that was almost agreed upon before talks hit their most recent snag and were adjourned. Two concerns were prosaic and had already been widely discussed. One, a demand for the revocation of existing tariffs before the agreement could be inked, and two, a demand for a, quote, realistic, unquote, level of required purchases of U.S. goods by the People's Republic. The third, though, was, quote, to improve the balance of the wording of the text, every country has its dignity and the text must be balanced, unquote. In other words, the blunt accusations of the U.S. have stung Chinese pride, and this is not a small matter. In recent news, the geopolitical dimensions of the conflict have focused on two areas, 5G technology and rare earths. 5G, that is the next generation wireless technology, became a particular bone of contention when Meng Wanzhou, the chief financial officer and daughter of the firm's founder of Chinese telecom giant Huawei, was arrested in Canada for extradition to the United States. The U.S. accused Huawei of skirting restrictions on business deals with the Islamic Republic of Iran. But in essence, the action was a shot across the bow of one of Chinese most successful and influential global companies. Back in March, we told you about Huawei's role in building the network of undersea cables that carry much of the world's internet traffic and concerns that, at the behest of the Chinese government, Huawei could covertly monitor internet traffic or even disrupt it altogether in the case of war. There are similar concerns around Huawei's burgeoning global role in 5G, a technology which over the next several years will come to carry much of the wireless broadband traffic around the world. The global 5G rollout will require the installation of millions of base stations in the world's cities. And Huawei, so far, has a lead in being able to supply an integrated turnkey solution. 
and leads in actual shipments of base stations. The U.S. administration has expressed the same concerns about 5G that it has about marine cables, that, in China's form of authoritarian capitalism, companies of Huawei's size and influence must necessarily work hand-in-glove with the central government. Remember that back in October, Bloomberg Businessweek reported that tiny, nearly undetectable spy chips had been found in Chinese-manufactured servers used by several major U.S. tech firms. This brought close public attention to the potential problem not just of software hacking, but of the even greater security implications of hardware hacks. The U.S. has therefore been leaning hard on allies to deny Huawei a role in the build-out of their 5G networks, pressure that met with limited success. Two weeks ago, the U.S. upped the ante, blacklisting Huawei as an entity barred from doing business with any company in the U.S., For a moment, that threatened to pull the rug out from under the company's use of Alphabet's Android operating system, which would have been catastrophic for Huawei, which is the world's second largest smartphone manufacturer behind Samsung and ahead of Apple. The U.S. then allowed some temporary exemptions, including Alphabet, but after such an existential threat, Huawei is surely scrambling to get an Android lookalike operating system ready to go, as well as its own app store to replace Google Play. We've often written that the balance of power in the conflict between the U.S. and China is unequal. China is far more vulnerable to U.S. actions and sanctions than the U.S. is to China's. One weak spot that has often appeared in media coverage is rare earths, a topic we have addressed in previous years in our market commentary. Rare earths are elements, primarily in the lanthanide series of the periodic table, that are small but critical components of many modern technological products, especially batteries, magnets, lasers, exotic alloys, catalysts, nuclear controls, and advanced glass formulations for screens and lenses. They are not actually particularly rare. The most plentiful of them exist in the Earth's crust in greater amounts than minerals such as copper, but they were named at the end of the 19th century because they existed in complex mineral deposits and were then challenging to mine and refine. Rare earths deposits actually exist plentifully in many places around the world. However, although deposits are so widespread, production is currently not. Until the 1980s, the U.S. was the main producer, but over the course of the 80s and 90s, the Chinese government decided intelligently on the strategic value of rare earths, And with government support, Chinese producers undercut their competitors abroad, and production elsewhere in the world gradually shut down. The largest U.S. mine remains shuttered. The U.S. Department of Defense report that came out last December on the security of the U.S. industrial supply chain noted the importance of rare earths in particular. And they said, quote, As part of the increasingly global manufacturing and defense industrial base, Imports of strategic and critical materials, such as rare earths, have increased, causing a trade-off between supply dependency and lower costs. Rare earths are critical elements used across many of the major weapon systems the U.S. relies on for national security, including lasers, radar, sonar, night vision systems, missile guidance, jet engines, and even alloys for armored vehicles. China's domination of the rare earth element market illustrates the potentially dangerous interaction between Chinese economic aggression, guided by its strategic industrial policies and vulnerabilities and gaps in America's manufacturing and defense industrial base. 
China has strategically flooded the global market with rare earths at subsidized prices, driven out competitors, and deterred new market entrants. When China needs to flex its soft power muscles by embargoing rare earths, it does not hesitate, as Japan learned in a 2010 maritime dispute." Unquote. That muscle flexing was recently demonstrated when Chinese President Xi Jinping visited rare earths production facilities in China's west, a visit clearly intended to underline China's dominance in this area. The critical thing for investors to appreciate is that even here, China's threat lacks real bite. Supply chain disruption would occur in the short term if the U.S. had to source technological products from non-Chinese manufacturers. Even a ban on rare earths exports to the United States would be incomplete because of such transshipments. It would be a headache for the U.S., not a catastrophe. In the long term, there are abundant rare earths outside China. They simply need to be developed or reopened in the case of the U.S., as such ex-Chinese production ramps up, known reserves will also expand. We note that Brazil's deposits are already known to be rich. The U.S. would be wise to use the current realignment of priorities to encourage rare earths production outside China, especially given the increasing role that will be played by advanced batteries in global transport over the coming decades. The real trouble for China, though, is a race against time for its currency. Our favorite China analyst, Jonathan Anderson of Emerging Advisors Group wrote in a piece last fall that in the long term, the writing is on the wall for China's currency. That is, in the long term, it very likely must fall and must fall dramatically as domestic broad monetary growth outstrips the country's accumulation of foreign reserves. He notes that inevitably, that decoupling is what causes emerging market currency pegs or quasi-pegs such as China's to collapse. Much of China's growth in U.S. dollar terms over the past decades has in fact come from currency appreciation, as China has stored away foreign reserves. But for many reasons, that huge foreign exchange war chest is not going to grow further. It will shrink. First, however closed the Chinese financial system tries to be, it leaks, with about 2% of the banking system's assets finding their way out of the country through various kinds of theft and fraud every year. As the yuan weakens in coming years and decades, that flight will only accelerate. This is one reason why the Chinese government does not want its people trading cryptocurrencies. And second, China's era of massive trade surpluses is ending, both because of dissatisfaction on the part of trading partners such as the U.S. and Europe, and because Chinese wages have risen and low-cost manufacturing has been moving to other cheaper countries. It's a matter both of geopolitics and trade and of simple economics. The Chinese authorities know that both of these things are true, but in the long term they seem stuck on using fiscal stimulus to encourage the growth that they must create in order to keep their people content with their lifestyle. That means that broad money in China in the long term will keep outstripping foreign exchange reserves, and that in turn means that something must eventually give and that something will very likely be the yuan, if not soon, then in coming years and decades. China continues to have more to fear from trade conflict with the U.S. than the U.S. does from China. Major Chinese tech firms, such as Huawei, are highly vulnerable to U.S. blacklisting and diplomatic pressure. China's attempted return salvo, tacitly threatening industrially critical rare earths, will fall flat, 
as long as the U.S. is intelligent enough to incentivize domestic production and production by allies. Ultimately, China knows this. And again, we believe this is why a deal will be reached and why the U.S. will, after hardball negotiations, agree to a deal that allows China to save face while still securing the most concessions on critical items that it can. When that deal comes, it will allow global stock markets to rally. Here's our market summary for the week. With the inversion of the three-month to 10-year yield curve, recession fears are once again on the minds of U.S. investors. The sentiment in the air on a variety of subjects, including trade, is also negatively affecting investor psychology. No element of our suite of recession indicators is yet flashing red. As we have often said, the inversion of the yield curve typically precedes the onset of a recession and a market top by months or even years. Some analysts believe that the additional presence of quantitative tightening, that is, the Federal Reserve's reduction of its balance sheet, should make investors look at the yield curve differently. The evidence is inconclusive, so we believe that at most this indicator is yellow, not red. Of course, significantly negative market sentiment can itself help precipitate a recession when it becomes extreme. We do not believe that this extreme has yet occurred. On other less subjective and more data-driven points, such as the overall favorability of U.S. financial conditions, the lights are still green. While corporate profits have decelerated from the tax reform peak of last year, they have not yet decelerated so severely as to sound an alarm. Therefore, we continue to believe that the U.S. market can rally further in 2019, particularly if a near-term conclusion is successfully reached in the trade impasse between the U.S. and China. How the market responds to that announcement when it comes the strength and composition of the ensuing rally will shape our view of the rest of the year, and we will keep you apprised. Like the U.S., China will likely also resume its rally when a trade deal is concluded with the U.S., even if it leaves open the necessity to reach agreement on more difficult disputed points in the future. The trade conflict, even when it is resolved, will ultimately have significant effects on other countries which have hitherto mainly been part of China's supply chain. The brief trauma of uncertainty created by the trade conflict between the U.S. and China may have lasting and beneficial effects on other emerging market manufacturing exporters. Last week, we noted India, and in the long term, we continue to view India very favorably, especially as the Modi administration uses its new electoral mandate to deepen and accelerate the reforms that will make India a more attractive destination for global capital. Caught by her own failure, and perhaps the impossibility of the task that was set her. Britain's Prime Minister Theresa May will resign, leaving the way open to a host of staunchly pro-Brexit contenders. Britain went to the polls in European elections that Brexiteers had hoped would not be happening, and returned a stomping victory to Nigel Farage's Brexit party. Farage then demanded a seat at the table in the ongoing Brexit process. Across Europe, Eurosceptics, the Greens, and the far left gained ground at the expense of established center-right and center-left parties, presaging an ongoing era of change and realignment in European politics. It could all be for the continent's good, and will certainly be for the UK's, we believe, if a real Brexit occurs as planned on October 31st. However, we would not rule out untoward events in the meantime, even the engineering of a second referendum that puts the kibosh on Brexit entirely. As we noted last week, 
There are technical signs of a rally for gold this summer, and of course, any further volatility from trade war news and poor investor psychology may be a reason for investor dollars to favor gold. We noted that the head of Russia's central bank recently commented that although they remain opposed to cryptocurrencies, there was the possibility that Russia could participate in the creation of a gold-backed crypto for use in international settlements. It would be interesting to watch its adoption if it were launched. Thanks for listening. As always, we welcome your calls and questions. Please hit subscribe if you like what you heard today and if it was helpful for you. You can find us on the web at guildinvestment.com where you can get details about our upcoming conference call next week where you can send in your questions on specific subjects for us to answer. And you can find us in all the usual spots for social media. Thanks so much, and we'll talk to you again next week.